Well, good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Chris, and I am also one of the pastors on staff here uh, at Crossview, and it's my privilege again to bring the word to you this morning. We're going to continue uh, working through our series, our Advent series called This is Love. Uh, you may remember we've been working through this for the past few weeks, and if you've missed the previous messages, I would encourage you to go check those out on our website, starting with Pastor Dan's Gospel in Hard Places, uh, where he spoke light into the difficult struggle that many have with mental health. And then uh, we looked at Matthew 1 and the genealogy of Jesus and saw that love came through broken people. And then last week we talked about love revealed um, when we opened up John chapter 1 and talked about who Jesus is and why him stepping down in flesh still matters to us today. We're continuing that series this morning by turning back again to the book of Matthew. And this week we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 in a message called Receive the King. You may remember that this is the story of the three wise men, as we just sang about. It's a story that many are familiar with, familiar with and that we sing about in many songs, including uh, the one we just did. So as we work through uh, this text this morning, we're going to see three main sections. First, the arrival of the king, and then two very different responses to his arrival. So uh, would you open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, if you haven't done that. We also have uh, that available in the YouVersion Bible app uh, with sermon notes and all that if you want to find that. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Uh, if you want to follow along in that translation, otherwise, whatever translation you have is just fine. So Matthew chapter 2. Verses 1 to 12. It says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, kings of, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. First up, he's here. The king has Arrives. Just a few verses prior to our text this morning, we read the story of an angel coming to Joseph. We're maybe familiar with this, right? Telling Joseph of the child that the Virgin Mary had conceived by the Holy Spirit and ultimately communicating to him about the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Well, apparently, at the time of Jesus' birth, some sort of star went up in the sky right above him. And people 
took notice, right? There's been a lot of debate about the nature of this star. Was it a natural phenomenon? Maybe some planets aligned or it was some sort of eclipse or maybe it was a comet flying through the sky or some other astrological occurrence. And Matthew doesn't make that clear. And it's just purely speculation from me because it's not in the text. But I think when Jesus arrived, God placed his glory above him announcing to the whole world that the king had arrived and making it obvious where he was so anyone who was seeking him could find him. It was a not-so-subtle declaration of the arrival of the king. In any event, however that light was hung in the sky above Emmanuel, these men from the east saw it in their far-off land and set out to find the one who it marked. So they arrive in Jerusalem looking for Jesus, right? And somehow along the way they learned that he was the king of the Jews and that he was worthy of worship. Maybe God divinely revealed that to them. It's fascinating here that Matthew records the magi or the wise men as the first people to seek the king born in Bethlehem. You may remember that King David was from Bethlehem and that Bethlehem was a town just outside the great Jewish city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was like the hub of Israel. This region would have been full would have been chock full of Jews who should have been eagerly anticipating the Messiah that had been prophesied. It was full of experts in the Old Testament, scribes and Pharisees and other teachers. God's chosen nation was right here. That nation that he made all those promises to that we heard about a couple weeks ago, the promises to Abraham and David that ultimately culminated in a savior coming who would rescue his people and who would sit on David's throne forever. But Matthew doesn't tell us about any Jews who go and visit Jesus. For Matthew, it's foreigners. It's foreigners, these men from the east. Well, by now, I think we should sort of expect this unexpected narrative from Matthew, right? And in the genealogy, we saw that he listed all sorts of flawed and unexpected kinds of people, murderers and adulterers and prostitutes and on and on. And now, here, it's not God's chosen people who alert Herod to the, the uh, fact that his his reign is in jeopardy, but it's magi from the east. Magi, if you don't know, are, uh, according to professor and author D.A. Carson, was a term often used to refer to the priestly caste of Medes who enjoyed special power to interpret dreams. During New Testament times, the term loosely covered a wide variety of men interested in dreams, astrology, magic, books thought to contain mysterious references to the future, and the like. Some magi honestly inquired after truth, like those found in our story, but many were rogues and charlatans. So why does Matthew record the magi first? Well, in Matthew's writing about the arrival of Jesus, I think he's doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on the nature of the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. It's not a kingdom meant for the religious elite. It's not for those with the proper bloodlines or for those who grew up hearing the good news and the scriptures all the time, right? It's not an exclusive club for those with the right pedigree. The arrival of Jesus, the king who would sit on David's throne and reign in heaven at God's right hand was an arrival of a new kind of kingdom, one that only requires belief and not background. The kingdom Jesus ushered in only requires belief and not 
background. I think there are at least two things worth pointing out about this new kind of kingdom. First, it doesn't matter what your background is. Jesus wants a relationship with you. It doesn't matter what your background is. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to rescue you up out of your sin and transform your heart and give you life. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the church or you never attended church your whole life and this is your first time listening online or being here in person. It doesn't matter if you've spent your whole adult life studying the scriptures or pursuing unwholesome things. It doesn't matter what your background is. Jesus wants a relationship with you. The second thing about this new kind of kingdom is it doesn't matter who someone is, what they've done, or where they've been. Jesus wants a relationship with them, just like he does you. He wants a relationship with them just like he does you. And honestly, this second one has been a big challenge for me over the last several months. This idea that Jesus wants a relationship with them and can forgive them just like he did me. Right? We see people who commit egregious sins, right? Sometimes it's on like a local or, or national or worldwide stage, right? We see it on the news Sometimes it's just in front of us and we see these sins committed or these patterns or maybe on social media in front of a small crowd. We see people do terrible things and we rightly want justice, right? We see people live horrible, terrible lives. And then in the end, after they spent all of their days pursuing terrible things, as they're on their deathbed, with their last breath, they surrender to Jesus and he forgives them. That's challenging. The, the thief on the cross types are really challenging for me. You guys remember the story of the thief on the cross? This guy who lived his whole life in uh, doing illegal and bad things, and eventually it catches up to him, and he's hanging on a cross, getting the punishment that he deserves, and he's hanging next to Jesus, and he's dying there for what he's done. And he turns, and he confesses Jesus as Lord, like in his last moments. And what happens? Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. How can there be grace and mercy for someone like that, who spent their whole life pursuing terrible things? Or maybe this one hits closer to home. How can someone drive their car through a parade? And then, if they turn to Jesus in repentance, he forgives them. He forgives them. The mercy of God is unfathomable. It's unfathomable. Paul, another example, right, author of much of the New Testament. You've heard about this guy, I assume. You've praised his writings and you've sat under his teaching as you've read the letters in the New Testament or heard them preached. Well, he was hunting and murdering Christians when God swooped in and rescued him out of his sin. It's challenging stuff. Right? Well, what's the point? The point is we're all broken and God wants a relationship with them just like he wants a relationship with you. We all have people in our lives that we think are terrible, right? Whether personally or we see them on TV, I usually refer to them as something like terrible humans, right? It's a terrible human. The thing is we're all terrible humans and God is in the business of revealing himself to terrible humans, to foreigners, to those who are outside of the obvious. 
So when you're interacting with people whose lives are a mess and who have done horrible things, whether it's observing them from a distance on the news or sharing a dinner table with them as your family gathers for Christmas or somewhere in between, remember that Jesus stepped down from heaven to pull them out of their sin just as much as he did for you. Just as much. Rightly call for justice. Rightly call for repentance and change. And rightly pray, even and especially against your natural inclinations, that the mercy and grace of God would be shown to them and that their lives would be dramatically changed by the love of Jesus, even if it's the last thing they ever do. That's why. That's why Emmanuel stepped down and took on flesh and headed to a cross so that anyone who believes would be with him in paradise. Anyone even if it's the last thing they ever do. Well, Jesus has arrived, right? He's here. The king has just arrived, and already in the book of Matthew, he's surprising us. Next, Matthew shows us two responses. Response number one, Herod and all Jerusalem in verses 3 to 8. So Herod hears about these foreigners coming in to worship the one who had been born king of the Jews, And he is, verse 3, deeply disturbed. He's deeply disturbed. Well, Herod, as you maybe know, was a paranoid king who was willing to do whatever it took to cling to his throne. A crowd of men showing up from the east, probably having traveled for weeks or months or even years to worship a child, brought a sense of legitimacy to this idea of, uh, or this idea of the arrival of this so-called king, right? People don't generally travel across countries to worship a little baby if they don't have good reason. So Herod takes notice. Herod was the political leader of the nation of Israel, and he was as insecure and as unpredictable of a leader as you can imagine. And the throne was not rightfully his. He got there by cunning and deceit and by forming alliances, right? He played the political game of the day. So as a result of him not belonging there, his insecurity is at a level beyond what most of us can imagine. At one point in his life, he becomes super paranoid that his wife and two of his sons are conspiring to kill him and take his throne. And so he has all three of them murdered because he's got this paranoia going on. Then, later in life, when he really was dying and he's dividing up his inheritance and, you know, dealing with his dying wishes and here's what I want to happen after I die and all that, he, he has another one of his sons murdered just because he doesn't want that son to eventually sit on his throne. Right? This guy was nuts. His dying wish was to have another one of his children murdered. You can imagine that him hearing the news of the arrival of this so-called king of the Jews doesn't sit too well with him, right? If he'll kill his own flesh and blood to protect this reign, there's probably not much that he's not willing to do. Later in Matthew, in a text that we're not getting to, uh, in an attempt to rid the world of Jesus, he orders an infanticide, right? The massacre of every boy aged two and under in and around Bethlehem. It's a terrible and atrocious act from an insecure and irrational king who did not deserve to be a leader in any capacity. He didn't deserve to be any kind of leader, but we're going to see later that God uses him nonetheless. So Herod, perceiving a threat to his throne, grabs all of the chief priests and scribes and says, hey, where is the Messiah actually 
going to be born, right? The chief priests and the scribes are among the most biblically literate people, maybe in all of human history. They were tasked with knowing the Old Testament and all the ins and outs of what was allowed and what wasn't allowed and what pure worship was and what it wasn't. And they were familiar, certainly, with all kinds of prophecies surrounding the birth of the Messiah, like this one that's quoted from Micah 6 in verse or from the book of Micah in verse 6, which says, And you, Bethlehem, out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod, having determined that this king wasn't actually in Jerusalem where he was, like he thought, but was in this neighboring town of Bethlehem, then recruits the wise men to find his exact location under the guise that he would be able to go and worship him too. Of course, we know that wasn't the case, right? We know that Herod wasn't really going to go worship Jesus. And eventually, the men, the wise men, were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And so they return to their country via another route. Well, Herod's response is alarming, to say the least, right? He, he massacres a bunch of babies, and he's deeply disturbed. But it's also understandable when we look at who he is. He was an unstable, power-hungry politician who was willing to do whatever it took to hold on to his power, however fleeting that was. I think what's more alarming is the second half of verse 3. Verse 3 again says this, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And all Jerusalem with him. The arrival of this group of magi from the east, along with the confirmation of the chief priests and scribes, should have sent Israel into a frenzy as they prepared themselves to receive their king, right? These guys came and said, the king of the Jews has arrived, and then their own people, the chief priests and the scribes, said, yep, he's here, he's born in Bethlehem. They should be in a frenzy preparing themselves to receive their king, this one that they had waited for, this one that God had told them he would send all the way back in the book of Genesis, the one that he promised to Abraham and David, the one who would come and pull them up out of their sin and rescue them. He's here. They should be excited beyond belief, preparing themselves to go and meet him. And yet, instead of preparing their hearts and flocking to Bethlehem and seeing their baby king, all of Jerusalem, that holy city, is disturbed along with King Herod. They're disturbed. The reaction to Jesus' arrival reveals the state of their hearts, right? They're comfortable. They're, they're good with their status quo. Their lives are pretty good, and things are going all right, and, you know, things are, their lives are nice and whatever. Why, why do they need a savior? Why do they need to go worship this king? They're spiritually dead, right? They had all the information. They knew all the facts. They knew their Bibles. They probably had large chunks of scripture memorized. But here's the thing. Knowing about Jesus is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. Knowing about Jesus is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. As a kid, uh, I always wanted to know about heaven. I'm sure if you grew up in the church, you probably wanted to know about heaven too. What did it look like? What did it feel like? What's the food like? Will there be dogs in heaven? What are these streets of gold going to be like? All these questions, right? And how far away is heaven? Well, one day after uh, my pastor growing up preached a sermon about I don't know what, uh, I went up and asked him, how far away is heaven? How far away is heaven? He looked at me and he said, Chris, I don't know how far away heaven is. I don't know. But I do know how you can miss it by a foot. 
You missed it by a foot. And I thought, what? He doesn't know where it is. How? And then he slowly pointed to the distance from my head to my heart. From my head to my heart. Having knowledge of Jesus is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. We can all have, we can have all the knowledge about who God is and what he's done and even have big chunks, chunks of the Bible memorized. But if we never confess Jesus as Lord, if we never place our trust in him for salvation to deliver us from our sin, it's all worthless. It doesn't matter if we're like the scribes and chief priests who know all about the Bible and the law and could give you any facts from Scripture and the Old Testament that you wanted, right? Throughout the four Gospels and here at the very beginning, they show that they don't understand the good news of Jesus at all. They're spiritually bankrupt, searching for salvation by upholding this law that was intended to expose sin, not grant salvation. Knowing about Jesus is not the same thing as knowing him. Don't be like Herod and the scribes and all of Jerusalem who knew Jesus had arrived and didn't let it impact their hearts in any way. Who didn't let it get to the point of seeking him. They know all about him. And either they didn't care or they wanted to kill him. Response number two, the wise men. The wise men, or magi, or kings from the east, as they're sometimes called, of course, respond quite differently than Herod. We've already gathered as much from the first few verses of chapter 2 when their intentions are clearly revealed, right? They travel all the way to Jerusalem from this far-off land uh, to come and worship the one who had been born king of the Jews. They arrive in Jerusalem and they're talking to anybody that they, can, that they can find, right, to find out exactly where the baby is. Apparently the star had led them this far to the city of Jerusalem, but they can't quite pinpoint where Jesus is. The good news is Herod has already done that last bit of hard work for them. Remember, he'd just met with the scribes and the chief priests who figured out that Jesus wasn't in Jerusalem, but was in fact in this neighboring town of Bethlehem. And so Herod, thinking that he'll now utilize the wise men, tells them where Jesus should be located. I think if you zoom out here for a second, it's kind of funny what's happening, right? You can imagine Herod, and uh, he's sitting in his throne room or in his office or wherever he is, and he's all smug. Right? I know where he is. I know where this Jesus is you guys are looking for, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you, but but when I tell you, then you got to go find him and then come back and tell me exactly where he is so I can go and worship him. You can picture him in all his craziness thinking, wow, killing this baby is not going to be that hard. I got these guys who are going to pinpoint him for me and I can just go over and off him and it's done. My throne is secure. This king is gone. It'll be all over and we're good to go. Well, the problem is God is much smarter than Herod. Right? Herod thinks he's playing this strategic game of checkers, right? If we just jump this and, ju- and eventually we can jump the king and he's gone and then we win. We win the game and we keep the throne. Well, the problem is God isn't playing checkers. God is playing chess. And God makes a mockery of Herod. And instead of Herod using the wise men to find King Jesus so he can kill him, God uses Herod to lead true worshipers to their true king. He flips the script on its head. Even broken, twisted leaders, some of the worst people who have ever existed, can be used for God's purposes. So, 
Verse 9, after Herod tells them where they should go and they have this whole interaction, they find the star again and they follow it all the way to Bethlehem where it stops right over the place where Jesus is. And now here's where the response gets really good. In verse 10, it says, when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Another translation says, when they arrived, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You don't have to know any original languages to understand the sentiment here. These guys are overwhelmed by Jesus even before they enter the house, right? Everything they'd traveled for, every step of the journey, every day spent with sun beating down on their backs, and every night slept away from home out with these stinky animals. It was all worth it. It was all worth it. They'd finally made it to the doorstep of the king. And then they go in. Verse 11. It says, entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling on their knees, they worshiped him. They see the child with his mother, and they just break on their knees, worshiping. I think we see movies where this sort of thing happens in the presence of royalty, right? We come to the scene, and some peasants enter the throne room, or maybe some soldiers who just got back from this great battle, and they go up and they talk to the king, and they do this formal thing where they bow, or they hit their knees, and they avert their eyes, and they, you know, they're showing honor and respect to their king, and they're demonstrating their allegiance. Well, again, it doesn't say this in the text, but I don't think this was anything like that. The men enter the house. They see the child with Mary, and they realize we are in the presence of God himself, and they absolutely hit the deck. Faces down on the ground, weeping and praising and confessing and trusting for salvation. The king has arrived. God himself is in our midst. You might be familiar with the phrase ugly crying, right? It's, this, it's not this one tear that kind of streaks down your face that's cute. It's like this, this ugly crying when you're so overwhelmed by emotions or a situation where you just, it just falls apart. I think that's what's happening here with these men. They are moved beyond anything they have ever experienced before. And these guys are magi, right? They work with dreams and magic and all kinds of weird things. And so they'd seen stuff in their life, but they'd never seen anything like this. They fall flat on their faces, worshiping God himself, who's sitting right there in front of him as a young child. Well, eventually, uh, they pull it together, right? They get their composure, and they get up and remember, oh yeah, we brought gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, these gifts were expensive and deeply meaningful. Uh, again, like a little bit of last week, I'm relying on the work of pastor and author James Montgomery Boyce uh, in understanding these three gifts. So first, they brought gold. Gold, of course, is still a prized precious metal today. All right, gold in this time is the metal of kings. When these wise men approached Jesus with gold, they were giving him a highly valuable and highly symbolic gift. They're declaring true what they'd heard before, that the king has arrived. This one right here, right in front of us, is the king. We acknowledge that, and we acknowledge his right to rule. Second, they give frankincense. Well, frankincense is a type of incense, and you can still get it today, and apparently it smells pretty good. 
Well, when the wise men gave Jesus incense, they were pointing to a couple of things. Jesus, as our great high priest, that one who would represent us before the Father, and pointing to his sinless and holy nature. See, in the Old Testament, incense was used in temple worship. It was mixed with oil to anoint the priests of Israel, right? And so Jesus being anointed here as priest. And it was blended into meal offerings, which were given as thanksgiving and praise gifts to God. Boyce also points out that incense was never mixed into sin offerings. So when they would sacrifice an animal or whatever, there was never incense mixed in those sin offerings. It is true that Jesus would be our ultimate sin offering as he went to the cross, right, bearing our sins and shame. But even though that's true, he himself was fully pure and without sin. And so his perfect holiness is announced, even if subtly, from the very first time we meet him, in the book of Matthew. Because of that holiness, because of that sinlessness, Jesus is the only one who is capable of bearing the sins of the world as our substitute. It's declared here in the second gift. The ability to function as our substitute leads us to the third and final gift, myrrh. So we've got gold, right, declaring his kingship, frankincense, declaring his priesthood and his holiness and his sinlessness, and now myrrh. Gold, incense, and, drumroll please, a spice used for embalming dead bodies. That's kind of a weird gift, right? If you showed up to the home of a new parent with some gold, that'd be pretty cool. If you showed up with something that smells good, also pretty cool. But if you showed up with something uh, that they would use eventually at the funeral of this little person someday, well, maybe not your best idea, right? Maybe you don't want to do that. But for Jesus, it was absolutely appropriate. For anyone who had taken a look at the Old Testament and understood who this king was to be and what kind of life he would live, this gift was not a surprise at all. See, even at the moment of his birth, the purpose of Jesus is boldly declared in Matthew's gospel. Jesus came as king to usher in a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom that Pastor Kale calls the upside-down kingdom where the weak and the broken and the needy and the servants are the greatest and the prideful and strong and mighty struggle to find their place. Where foreigners and outsiders are grafted into God's family and saved by their faith and the experts in the scriptures found themselves on the outside, missing the whole point. A kingdom who would have a holy, perfect, sinless king who could summon legions of angels to do his bidding, to do whatever he want while he was on earth. But he didn't use that. Instead, he walked towards and walked with the most broken sinners of his day. This king endured temptation from Satan himself and defeated him by quoting scripture, not by commanding armies. It's a kingdom whose king would die. But that death would come to be known not as loss, but as the greatest victory in history. He died to conquer death itself and to save his people from their sins. Talk about upside down, right? Dying was winning. In dying, he won. It's no surprise then to see the king of this upside down kingdom getting an upside down gift. He's king. He's sinless. And he died on a cross so that you and I might have life. 
In response one, we saw King Herod and the religious elite and all of Jerusalem were deeply disturbed at the arrival of this long-awaited king, right? They rejected him. Here, in response two, we see the wise men seeking and finding and falling on their faces, overwhelmed in joy and worship. They bring gifts. They receive the king. Well, the point of this story in Matthew is not entertainment. Right, yes, we may someday again see our children here at Crossview Church portray Joseph and Mary and the angels and the wise men in a Christmas program. And I'm all for that. I love kids portraying the gospel for people to see. But the purpose of this story isn't entertainment. The purpose of this story isn't even just for it to be read on Christmas morning uh, before you dive into the real gifts right, that are tucked away under the tree. The point of the story of Herod and Jerusalem and the wise men and Jesus is to boldly declare that the king has arrived. King Jesus has arrived. And to throw a question in our faces, how will you respond? How will you respond? Jesus is here. He's here. He really was born some 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. He really did usher in this new kind of upside-down kingdom. And he really did live a perfect, sinless life and go to a wooden cross and defeat death. All of those things happened. They really did. And so, just like last week, you've got a choice. You can reject Jesus as Herod did. You can try and run from him. You can try to get away from him. You can try to live your life how you want. You can even try to, to kill him so he doesn't have any impact on anything you do or those around you. People try that all the time. Or, like the wise men, you can seek him. You can seek him. You can turn to Jesus in faith and acknowledge him as king and fall down before him in worship and watch him transform your life from the inside out and turn your world and your priorities upside down. That's your choice this morning. And you, you can choose. That's the beauty of free will that we have as humans. You can choose to reject him and walk away. Or you can choose to seek him. And the amazing truth that the Bible promises is that if you seek him, if you seek him earnestly, you will find him. If you ask and seek and knock, Jesus will show himself to you. If you're struggling with all of this and wondering, is this really real? Like, is the message of Christmas and Jesus' arrival, is it true? Like, did Jesus really come? Was he really born of a virgin? And did he die on a cross and all of that stuff? Did that really happen? If you're wrestling with those questions, we have a book, I think, at the Welcome Center that would be helpful for you. There's probably 50 or so copies left. It's called, Is Christmas Unbelievable? It's, it's about 50 pages. It's more of a booklet than a book. I think whether you're a Christ follower or you're new to this idea of Jesus, if you're wrestling through all of this and you're struggling with your faith or whether you should have faith or not, I encourage you to grab a copy of that book. We have just about 50 copies, so just grab it if you'll read it or give it to someone else who will. And I think you'll find that helpful. As we conclude, believer or unbeliever, my charge to you this morning is the same. Seek Jesus. Seek Jesus. Seek him earnestly until you find him. And when you do, don't let your relationship stay at knowledge. Oh yeah, I've heard about Jesus. I, I, I see him every Sunday at church and we met once, and it's all pretty cool. I know about him. Don't let it stay there. Don't let it sit in your head 
as facts and stories and legends. Connect what you know in your head to be true with your heart and pour out your life and your gifts in worship to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ who took on human flesh and stepped down to usher in a new kind of kingdom. We're so grateful for the promise of your word that it doesn't matter who we are or what we've done. If we turn to you in repentance, we can be fully forgiven and free in Jesus. We ask that as we leave here today, you would remind us of the security of our salvation in you and cause our knowledge of who you are to lead us to a place of joy and worship. For those here thinking through their decision to follow you or not, I ask that you would reveal yourself powerfully and show yourself to them this week and draw them to you. We love you and we thank you for this time and your word together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Could you stand and worship with us?
The King of Heaven has come down, Emmanuel, God with us. He took on flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life, and died on a cross. And he wants a relationship with you. Seek him, and you will find him. Receive these words of benediction from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Have a blessed week.